Thank you, Tim. Before I pray, uh, this uh, quick note that this evening at uh, 6.30 in the lounge, a group of us will be gathering to simply read Isaiah chapters 1 through 11. So if you'd like to come out and just be saturated in the word of the Lord, come out and join us and participate in that. 6.30 this evening in the lounge. I also want to take a moment this morning um, to have, if, if Dick Astefan would stand up, yeah, and Judy, Judy Houston, would you stand up for a moment? Like, she's not going to do it. Judy, you have to. I'm your pastor. And, then, <laughs> and, and Amy Klein. Amy, you stand up too. So we are blessed by this youth choir that we have that you heard this morning. Uh, but these three folks uh, really make that possible through their giving to our youth. And I think it's important that we say thank you and also recognize we can offer up a applause of praise this morning for their labors. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your gifts to our youth and to our church. With that, uh, we'll I'll prepare our hearts through a prayer of illumination, and I'll invite Bethany to, to come up to the lectern here for the scripture reading. Please join your hearts with mine as I lead us in a prayer. Lord, this is a season when we very much focus on the longing we have for light, and the sober reality of the continuing power of darkness. Lord, we need your light this morning, the light of the Spirit of God. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts, that we would see Christ, we would see his glory, and that we would be able to, in faith, cling to the hope that we have in him. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp, and the grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall there be any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. As Lucy walked through the wardrobe, she began to feel something wet and cold. 
falling upon her. Soon she recognized snowflakes falling through the air and snow beneath her feet. She later learned that she had entered the world of Narnia, a world under a curse, a world where it's perpetually winter, but never Christmas. Our text this morning provides a a similar, albeit not exact, type of imagery, imagery of a world under a curse. In this case, in the case of Isaiah 35, the curse is not one of snow or cold or winter. Instead, the curse Isaiah speaks of is one of heat, of desert, of dryness. It's the absence of precipitation, not its presence, that is the problem here for the people of God in the land of God in the time of Isaiah. But just like in the story of Narnia, Isaiah presents us with a story of transformation. One day, this desert, this dry, weary land will be verdant. Rain will come. Isaiah proclaims the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. The theme of the message this morning is the theme of transformation. And that theme is appropriate for this time of year, for Advent. There's a reason why this text is in the lectionary readings for this third third Sunday of Advent. Transformation is part of Advent. Transformation of the creation and the creature. Of the hummus, or the soil, if you will, and the human. The hope of Advent And the hope of Isaiah was for transformation. But this morning, I want to think about how that happens. How do we get transformation? What do we need for it? What are the prerequisites for transformation? If transformation were a cake, what what are the ingredients that you need to bake it? What's necessary for transformation? And I think there are three things that one needs to have, one needs to believe in order to realize transformation. First, you have to believe something is wrong. Something is awry, amiss. Second, you have to believe it can be made right. And thirdly, you have to believe in an agent of change, some transformational figure, some catalyst that triggers the transformation. You have to believe something is wrong, that it can be made right, and there's someone or something that can make that transformation happen, an agent of change. In our time together this morning, I want to look at those three things, those three ingredients of transformation and how they emerge from our text from the broader story of Scripture, how they relate to Advent, and then think particularly about how they challenge us, how this whole topic of transformation challenges us during this season of Advent as we hope for transformation. So let's look at those three ingredients together this morning. The first one is this, you have to believe something is wrong. I mean, who needs transformation if everything is okay, if the status quo is fine? In order to have transformation, you have to believe that something is wrong. And all of all these three ingredients, I think this one is the easiest one to come by. I think almost everyone embraces the idea that something is wrong. Both Democrats and Republicans 
both Christians and secularists. The opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, Fox News and CNN, they both agree that something is wrong. While these pairings may disagree about the nature of what is wrong, they all agree that something is wrong. No one really argues with that underlying premise. And I'm guessing you this morning that you would agree and affirm to that premise that something is wrong in the world and in us. And the Bible has, as part of its core story, its core narrative, that very fact, that very truth, that something is wrong. You only need to read three chapters into the 66 books of the Bible before you're introduced to what is wrong with the world. What's wrong with us and what's wrong with the entire creation. The Bible tells a story that begins in a verdant place, in a, in a garden, in a place in blossom and in bloom, a place of beauty, a place of peace, a place of rest, a place of communion with God unencumbered by sin, a place where there is no wrong and thus no transformation is necessary. But just three chapters in, we are told that something went wrong. Something driven by the choice of two humans, Adam and Eve. A wrong choice that brought a curse, a curse that impacted both humanity and also the hummus, the creation itself. And so the land became hard to work. It was thorns and thistles. It was the sweat of the brow. And evil entered into the human heart, and that evil grew Cain slew his brother. Wickedness became greater, so great that God sent a flood. The curse impacted humanity. It impacted the hummus. It impacted everything. As Paul tells us, through one man, through Adam, death came to all people. And that same apostle tells us that the creation groans for its redemption. The curse has come upon both human and hummus. That's the story of the Scriptures, and it's the story of Isaiah in our text. The people of God here, Isaiah tells us, are under a curse. The land of God, the land of Israel, is under a curse. Recognizing that something is wrong is vital to transformation, because if you don't know you're lost, you can't be found. If you don't know you're cursed, you can't be blessed. The first prerequisite, the first ingredient for transformation is the belief that something is wrong. The second ingredient you need is you have to believe it can be made right. You have to believe that what's wrong can be made right. And regarding this, I think there's much more of a divisive type of attitude. That something is wrong, I think, is a truth that is nearly universally acknowledged. But the idea that it can be fixed, that it can be made right, that is much more divisive. Some believe. Some don't. Isaiah was a believer. He believed that things could change. He believed that what was wrong could be made right. And for Isaiah, what was wrong was that the people of God were in exile. And that the land of God was cursed. 
curse had come upon the people of God and the land of God, but Isaiah believed that that could be reversed, that that could be changed, that the wrong could be righted, and he speaks about that. He proclaims that truth to the people of God. He says the cursed land, the hummus, would one day be transformed. Isaiah writes in the first two verses of chapter 35, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And then later on in verses 6 and 7, as Tim referred to in the children's message, for the water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, burning, the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. Isaiah believed that the curse could be reversed, that the hummus will blossom. That wrong will be made right. And he believed that not only for the creation, not only for the land, but he believed it for the human as well, that we could be transformed and would be transformed. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, Isaiah proclaims, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. Transformation is for the human. What is wrong in us will be made right. Now here we have to be careful. One can read those verses and conclude that what's wrong with us as humans is purely physical. And we could wrongly conclude that people with disabilities are somehow lesser than those without them. As Tyler Mayfield rightly reminds us as modern readers, when we read these verses, he says, it is very easy to slip into ableist rhetoric that glorifies the non-disabled person who can see, hear, walk, and speak. Isaiah is not talking about people with challenges and disabilities in the physical sense. In his world, often physical infirmities and disabilities were connected as meta metaphors to a deeper spiritual problem. That's really what Isaiah is talking about here, a deeper spiritual infirmity, one that is shared by all of humanity, and that infirmity is our own sinfulness, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. That is our universal human disability. What we lack is holiness because we are sinners. But the hope that Isaiah proclaims is that wrong, our wrong, can be made right, that it will be transformed by God. Verse, 30, sorry, verse 8 of chapter 35, Isaiah proclaims a highway shall be there and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. Isaiah proclaims a day when those who are unholy will be on the holy way. That there's a way out that the curse will be reversed for the human, and that the human will blossom and flourish. The idea that wrongs will be made right is at the core of the biblical story. After you get through those three chapters, after you learn what's wrong with the world, the fall, 
The impact it has on creature and creation. After that, the story unfolds. The rest of the book is about how the world will be transformed. How humans will be transformed. How what is wrong shall be made right. And in that story of the Bible, the redemption of the hummus and the human, the creature and the creation, they are intertwined in the story. Something Paul makes so profoundly clear in Romans chapter 8. Paul writes there, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. At the core of our faith is the belief in transformation that what is wrong will be made right. The second ingredient for transformation is the belief that wrongs can be righted. And then thirdly and finally, the last ingredient that you need for transformation is that you have to believe in an agent of change. You have to believe in an agent of change. Transformation requires a catalyst It requires a cause. It requires something or someone to change things. And again, there is widespread agreement about this. People who embrace the idea that something is wrong and that it can be made right also agree that something has to be done. Something has to change the calculus. The disagreement usually arises as to who or what that is. In the world, the view of who or what changes things, the agent of change is often identified either as the individual or as the government or the collection of individuals acting through state power. That's how most people believe that transformation will come. And at some level, the Christian has no argument with that. Any good Kyperian will tell you That every inch of creation is Christ's. We believe in the role of individuals and the role of governments for good, for transformation for good. But we also recognize as Christians that you need more than that. And that's the distinction between the Christian worldview and that of the world's view. We believe you need something, someone more. That there are limitations to the power of the individual, the power of the government. For the Christian, the ultimate agent of transformation, particularly the spiritual transformation that we need, comes from God. It is the coming of the Lord. It is the coming of the Lord that changes everything. And that's what Isaiah proclaims in this text. In verse 4, he proclaims, Say to those who are fearful fearful heart, Be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. 
He will come and save you. That is Isaiah's proclamation. It is God, the coming of God, who will transform everything. That is the trigger. That is the catalyst. Isaiah tells us that the agent of change, the one who brings transformation, the one who rights the wrong, the one who makes the desert blossom, the one who constructs the highway of holiness, the one who transforms both hummus and human is God. And more specifically, with the retrospective of redemptive history in its fullness, we look back and we recognize that the one Isaiah proclaimed is none other than Jesus Christ. Isaiah is speaking of the coming of the Lord, the coming of Jesus. Now, how do I know that? Because Jesus Himself tells us that in the Scriptures. Jesus owns this text of Isaiah. Let me explain that. Put on the fast forward button all the way to the New Testament to the time of John the Baptist. John the Baptist begins his ministry where? In the wilderness. In a desert place. And his voice was a voice crying in the wilderness. He is the Isaiah of the New Testament. And one day he saw the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He saw Him. He recognized Him for who He is. He proclaimed Him. He pointed Him out. He said, I'm not worthy to carry His sandals. This is the Messiah. But John found himself in prison. And he began to wonder and he began to doubt. Was this really the one? Is this really the agent of change? The one who will bring transformation? And so John sends his disciples to Jesus to find out, and they come to Him and they question Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? And Jesus answers back in Luke 7, verse 22, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news brought to them. That, of course, is a quotation from our text this morning from Isaiah 35, and Jesus owns it. He applies it to Himself. He identifies Himself as the One who comes to save, the One who comes to bring transformation, the One who reverses the curse. At the core of the biblical narrative is the story of Jesus, the one who changes and transforms everything. He is the agent of change. Believing that Jesus is the agent of transformation is not an excuse for us to whistle by the graveyard of injustice, but it does make us ever cognizant of our limitations, ever aware of the source of our true hope. And that true hope is grounded It's embedded, it is anchored in the reality of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third ingredient for transformation is the belief in an agent of change. And for the Christian, that agent of change is the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have it. Three simple things that you need for transformation. You need to believe that something is wrong. 
that it can be made right and that there is an agent of change and that all seems rather neat and tidy. It is all there in the story of the Scripture. It's all there in the story of Isaiah. But there's a problem and a challenge that's in that. And it's particularly a Christian challenge. It's particularly an Advent challenge. And that challenge or that problem is the Lord has come. The Lord has come, but the curse lingers. The wrong still remains around us, and we struggle with it inwardly. Don't get me wrong, the first advent of our Lord was indeed glorious and amazing. Redemption was accomplished, and I am no way in denigrating our Lord's work, but one must acknowledge the reality that in a sense, the first advent of our Lord made things more challenging. And what I mean by that is that the first advent gave us this taste of the age to come. It whetted our appetites. It raised our expectations, but it did not satiate our souls. In many ways, the first advent created ever more longing in us. Jesus comes. He ascends a mount. He tells us what the kingdom of God should look like. He gives us this beautiful portrait of a land that we all want to live in, that we all want to see happen around us. But yet at every turn, when we try to realize it, thorns and thistles, frustration, We try to right the wrongs. So often we meet with obstacles, meet with forces. That's the Advent challenge, the challenge of living in the time between the first and second Advent. And it's not just a challenge peculiar to us here in the 21st century. It happened almost immediately after Jesus came the first time. It quickly dawned on people that there would be this challenge. Think once again about John the Baptist, what the story I shared with you about John, how he's out there in the wilderness, he's proclaiming the coming of the Lord, he sees Jesus. He believes this is the one, this is the time, this is the transformation, and then John ends up in prison. John ends up in prison and he begins to ask himself, why? Stuff's supposed to change. Right? This is the one who has come, the one that Isaiah proclaimed. And he looks around and everything hasn't changed. He's in prison. The desert isn't blossoming. Why are the Romans still walking around? Why will my head be soon on a platter? Are you really the one? And even that answer that Jesus gives back to John the Baptist when he quotes from our passage this morning about those who are deaf being able to hear and the blind receiving their sight and the lame walking and lepers being cleansed and the dead raised and the poor having the good news, even as he claims that, it also in itself raises the same kind of tension, right? Jesus says, I am the one. But what's the problem? Fleming Rutledge 
identifies the problem when she writes, Yes, it is true that Jesus did heal the sick. Yes, it is true that Jesus did give sight to the blind. Yes, it is true that Jesus made the deaf hear. But how many? Only a few in the total number. Only a blind man here, a lame man there. He did not heal all the sick or raise all the dead. There are only a few, a token number. She's right. That's the Advent challenge, right? It's here. He's come. But it's not quite here. And he's coming again. And you live right there. Don't you ever feel that tension? Don't you feel like John the Baptist? Is this the one? Is this the one? When you look around and you see this world of illness, abuse, of injustice and hatred, of corruption, of intractable problems, things you try to solve day in, day out, they don't move, they don't budge. A world in which bullies and bigots often seem to win. A world in which your good deeds never seem to go unpunished. A world in which good is called evil and evil is called good. And yet in the midst of it all, we're called to believe. To believe He is coming and that He will save us. That He is coming to transform everything. And sometimes that's hard to believe. That's the challenge of Advent. Again, Fleming Rutledge gets it right when she says, Advent is not for the faint of heart. It's not. It begins in the darkness. Advent is not for the faint in heart. And Isaiah knew that too. Those ancient people were not all that different from us because they were there too. They were stuck there in exile. They were waiting for the Lord to come to fix everything just like we are now in between. And Isaiah knew it would be hard for them as it is hard for us. And so Isaiah told the people of God, he preached to their hearts, he told them what to do as you wait, and he proclaimed this. Verses 3 and 4, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, but do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Isaiah said to the people of God, this is what you do while you wait. You come together and you strengthen one another. You strengthen weak hands. You firm feeble knees. You come together and you hear proclaim the message He will come. And so this morning on this third Sunday of Advent, you come together, the people of God. You have gathered here in this time between as we wait for the coming of the Lord. You have come together to strengthen one another. To strengthen weak hands. To firm those knees that are feeble. To say to someone who's living in fear, be strong. And it is my job to proclaim to you that He will come. That He will come to save you. That He will come to right the wrongs. That He will come to transform the world. The desert will indeed blossom. 
in Lewis's Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, he concludes with this poem about transformation, the transformational impact of Aslan's return. And I think it resonates well with the season of Advent. It resonates well with the vision of Isaiah. It resonates well with our Advent hope. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. The desert will blossom. He will come to save. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, O Lord Jesus Christ, O Holy Spirit, we acknowledge in our hearts our doubts. We proclaim and recognize our longing, Lord. We confess our belief in your return and that you will make all things right, Lord Jesus. Help us to live now in the time between working to realize your kingdom, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And help us to help one another, to strengthen weak hands, to firm feeble knees, and to never end our proclamation of the coming of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please now join together as we respond?